For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer continues to elaborate on how the old covenant and Jewish worship was only a shadow. The reality was found in Jesus and the gospel he brings. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, The Good Things to Come. Alrighty, good morning, let's get started. You're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. It's the last chapter in an ongoing theme that started in chapter 7 about how the Old Testament morphed into the New Testament, how the first covenant went to the new covenant. And so uh, intriguing, fascinating, insightful stuff to think about, to apply to our lives. Let's ask the Lord to bless our study this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the more we study about the Old Testament forms of worship, the more we see the gospel, we see your heart, Lord, that everybody should come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Your will is that nobody perish, but everybody come to a place of repentance and have life. And, And so, Father, help us to feel your heart beat and be encouraged by your great love and the extent you went to to save us all. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Warren Wiersbe tells about the time he was speaking at a conference uh, with a Christian psychiatrist. And on one of the breaks, the psychiatrist turned to Warren and said, you know, Warren, the trouble with psychiatry is that it only deals with the symptoms. Now, we can help remove a patient's feeling of guilt, uh, but we can't remove the guilt. You know, I started thinking about that and what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to say about Old Testament worship. And, you know, trying to take away guilt through any kind of human effort, whatever it is, it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on leprosy. I mean, you could make it look better or, or more appealing Uh, or or more comfortable, but you do nothing to address the problem. Now, uh, he's really trying to get through to his Jewish Christian friends not to go back to their old life, and in their case, you know, they're being persecuted for their faith in Christ, and and, and so they want to go back to their old life, which is a very common thing for anybody who's being persecuted to get rid of the pain that that is being caused by your allegiance to Christ, then you kind of want to water that down in some way, or you're tempted at least to do that. And then we find uh, all kinds of ways to uh, substitute our relationship with Christ for other things that are cause less problems. And, and in their case, what would cause less problems is to go back to the temple worship and all their Jewish friends and family. And uh, the writer is saying, spending four or five chapters saying, here are all the reasons why you don't want to do that. You've got it made with Jesus. You're not going to find a deal like Jesus anywhere. And that goes... Uh, for a lot more than just the Old Testament forms of worship. And so that's really what it's all about. Uh, Judaism deals with the symptoms of man's problem. Uh, The first covenant was phase one of God's plan to save the world. And phase one was teaching and prepping and pointing. Phase one, Old Testament, Old Covenant, uh, was just the pointing teaching, getting us ready. It could not save. It didn't have the ability because God didn't do it that way. Then the Old Testament itself tells us there's a New Testament coming and that the Old Testament would fade away and the New Testament would come with Christ, the real deal, who would lay down his life for the sins of the world and not only pay for them, but remove them. And so that's the problem. He keeps wanting to show them going back to Judaism is going to be really an exercise in utter futility because the thing you're looking for isn't 
going to be found there, which is so true about life in general. So you're not going to find it back in Judaism. Verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. And he just finished saying in the paragraphs before, and are already here. Not the realities themselves. For, for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, he's really wanting them to see, make his case and understand. They, they can't, these same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, uh, they cannot make perfect those who draw near to worship. If they could, wouldn't they have been stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices, Old Testament worship, are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away human transgressions. Come on. So uh, this is where we'll park for point one. I'll call it the shadow, okay? If you're taking notes, number one, uh, the shadow, just endless futility because the old covenant keeps reminding us of the problem. Now, it says in your text, the law is only a shadow of the good things to come. Well, what does he mean by the law? Well, we've talked about this before. The law has several biblical connotations. Number one, when you say the law, you can be referring to the Ten Commandments or all of the commandments, or you could be referring to the first five books called the Pentateuch uh, of the Bible. Or you could be calling, uh, you could be naming the Psalms because in the New Testament, when that word law is used, then they'll quote from the Psalms. So we know that you can also call the Psalms a part of the law and also the prophets. So in the widest sense, when it says the law, he's talking about uh, Hebrew scriptures. But in this tense, uh, he's talking about all God's instructions for how you do Judaism, how you do the Old Testament form of worship in the temple, the sacrifices, the whole protocols, everything about that, that's just a shadow of the good things to come, he says. Now, here, I've got some pictures to help with this. So he's saying the temple, the temple's a shadow of the cross and Jesus Christ and everything about it. There's where Jesus dies for the sins of the world in the future. So the shadow is cast. The cross is, is here with a dark silhouette of somebody who is very much going to do and look like everything in the temple, the cleansing that that, that forgiveness would bring. And then, oh, wait, uh, next slide. We talked about the various furnishings. There's something in the future that's casting a shadow, and this is not the substance. It's the shadow of the real deal. And so we talked about how, for example, just grab one. Uh, Jesus said, this world is filled with darkness. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into a dark world, and men hate darkness because they do the wrong things. Their deeds are evil. But he says, but I am the light of the world. Anybody who follows me shall never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So all of these things are a shadow. The bread is placed on this. And we talked about this last week. He's, Jesus will say, I'm the bread of life. I came down from heaven. I'm the bread from heaven. If anyone eat of the bread, meaning if you get the cross and the work of the cross inside your soul, it will sustain you, not just for this lifetime, but it'll give you eternal life. So, uh, the, the cleansing, the light, the, the bread that saves us, the, the intercession uh, inter, um, that goes up in prayer. All of this is a shadow. Next slide, please. The priest, is he's really a shadow of the priest, Christ, who will come and take the hand of God the Father and the hand of the sinner and bring them together. That was the job of the priest. But he's not the, the one who does it. He, he's working in a model, you know, he's working on a, on a place on earth. He's taking a coal from the altars that had dripped blood. That was the prescription. And from that lit fragrant barrier, 
that came up and made pleadings of, of a fragrant intercession between God who is holy behind the curtain. Even the curtain is speaking. It's a shadow. And even the sacrifices were a shadow. Next slide, please. It's a shadow. It was never about a barnyard animal. It was about the Lamb of God who will one day, as fully God, fully man, come through the womb of a virgin, become one of us, and lay down his life willingly. But it's a shadow. It wasn't about, you you guys want to go back to doing this? When this is a shadow, there's something in the future, and it's good, and, and the light is dawning on that and casting a shadow. This is the shadow. The shadow can't save you, but it can tell you a lot. Now, shadows can tell you a lot of stuff, especially if there's detail in the shadow, right? So, so for example, here's a shadow of some famous guy. Who is that? Anybody know him? What's his name? It's just a shadow. How'd you know that? Okay, next one. Okay, who's, who's this? And who's that? I know. It's just a shadow, right? Can you tell these guys apart? Why? Because you have enough information, even with a shadow, to kind of get the general idea. And God made sure that the shadow of the gospel, the cross that will save the world, would fall on the face of this planet. Next slide. Judaism in Israel, 49, Isaiah 49, verse 5, says, Israel, you are the light to, to reflect the shadow of the good things that come, that, that the, there is a way to be saved. And it's through coming to the, the God of Israel and his Messiah and, and that, that the shadow can't save. Judaism was all about the shadow, but it couldn't save. Next. This is what could save. This was what was casting the shadow. And dark as it is, I mean, it's just awesome. There were 300 specific hints about what that form would look like. We would know that form would be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. Messiah has to be called Almighty God because it's prophesied. Almighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father. There he is. We knew everything about him. Where is he going to be born? Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Where is he going to do most of his ministry? Where is he going to grow up? Um, Galilee, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Uh, how is he going to live? The miracles he's going to do. Uh, everything about him was prophesied so that everybody could get the form and structure. Moses saying, look to the pole where I put a bronze serpent across and it'll look just like this, that anybody who looks, just simply looks and believes, will be healed of that snake bite. That's in the Old Testament. So there were shadows of this all over. Let me read a portion of Psalm 22. David is prophesying, and it's a thousand years before Bethlehem. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 1 of Psalm 22, the shadow of this, the reality. I cry out by day, but you don't answer. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He, he trusts in the Lord. He saved others. Let, uh, let the Lord save him. Many encircle me like wild animals, roaring lions, tearing their prey open. Uh, They open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. God wanted to be so clear about all the shadows that when he came to his people who should be reading these prophecies would say, oh, Psalm 22, did you hear what he said? He's crying out Psalm 22. 
and we've pierced his hands and feet, and there are evil men circling around him. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. They did that exact same thing. And, and God, in his mercy and his sovereign wisdom and the way he is and his love, cast a shadow of the substance before it happens to prepare the entire world, not just the Jews, about what he planned to do. But Next slide. But the shadow, he says, my dear Hebrew people, you're going back to Judaism, this isn't going to save you. This isn't going to save you. It has no power. It's empty. This saves you. You're going to leave him for this? Not going to work. Shadows are empty. They're powerless. I mean, the kids growing up, you know, what were they afraid of at night? Shadows, right? And that's an easy fix because you, you just go over to it and say, touch it. Look, there's nothing here. There is nothing here. This is an empty nothing. You have nothing to be afraid of. Just a shadow. So he says, yeah, you, wanna, you don't want to go back to empty silhouettes of nothingness. It's all pointing to him. And if you leave him for a shadow or a replica of this, you're in trouble. You're not going to be happy doing that. So he goes on to say, thank you for that. You can put the verses back up if you wouldn't mind. Thank you very much. Uh, he goes on to say, and he presents a common sense argument here, and I love it. It's very Jewish, and he's talking to Jewish people, and he's just saying to them, look, uh, if, it could, if our souls could have been saved, if you could have felt a relief and a cleansing in your conscience. If, you, if restoration to God could, be, could have been done, don't you think in 1,400 years we would have stopped offering the blood of bulls and goats? Come on, people. 14 years of peace offerings and meal offerings and transgression offerings at the list is a mile long. He says, the very existence of old temple, old Testament worship, the very existence of it is saying it can't fix it. It's only a reminder. You have a problem, and it's a big, serious problem. You need a stand-in. That certainly was common sense. The blood of bulls and goats isn't going to cut it, right? So over and over again, can you imagine how frustrating that would be? You know, I mean, the idea is here. You go to your accountant. And you, you got a problem, and the guy says, man, after looking at this, your numbers, man, they just don't add up. It's a big mess. And, <laughs> yeah, oh, wow, I, have you ever organized a thing in your life? Man, I mean, I just keep looking, mess, 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 mess. And, oh, yeah, wow, things are bad here. They don't add up. And that's all the Old Testament could do. Well, one day, well, one day, well, one day. I mean, you go to your physician. Hey, you're really sick. <laughs> you're like, yeah, that's why I'm here. Yeah, so, and, oh, yeah, you got a fever. Oh, yeah, it's a high one, 103. And, well, you've got something. Your blood counts are whacked. And? 1,400 years of being reminded God's behind a curtain. You go through there, you're dead. Unless you bring proof that justice has been done for your soul. And if you think it's a barnyard animal is enough to put you right with the living God, then guess again, over and over again, over again. In fact, he says each holiday, every um, Yom Kippur that comes once a year in the fall, he calls it a reminder of sins. In other words, it's like getting an annual bill in the mail. Like an annual, an annual bill, a tax bill that comes to you once a year that says you owe a lot. That's what Yom Kippur said. Biblically, wow. That's why he says, you want to go back there? He's him or no way, verses 5 through 10. 
Now, he says, therefore, when Christ, Christ is the Greek form of Messiah, which is Hebrew, same word. When Messiah comes into the world, he says, now he's going to quote our two verses from Psalm 40. He's going to put it in the mouth of Jesus at his incarnation at Bethlehem. He's saying that Jesus, by his, by his incarnation, is saying, sacrifice and offering you, God the Father, did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, Messiah, has arrived on the scene, is written about me in the Bible, this means Bible, scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. So now the writer is going to explain what that prophecy means. So the writer says, well, first David is saying, sacrifice, well, the Messiah is saying, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire. You weren't pleased with them. Although, in a paradox, the law required them to be made. So God told us to do it, but he wasn't happy about it. We're going to explain that. And then he says, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first covenant, the first, the Old Testament, to establish the second. When Messiah comes, we've got a new covenant because he's here. He's the real deal, not the blood of bulls and goats. And by that will, we've been made holy, separated to God and God to us through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So let's park there. We've seen, number one, the shadow. A sin-bearing Savior is coming. And number two now, the substance. A sin-bearing Savior has come. Let's talk about that. Now, another wise move on the part of uh, the writer to these Hebrews. He, he, he's saying, listen, the New Testament wasn't some Gentile's idea. It said, you know what, Jews? Uh, we're done with your covenant. We're going to call it the old covenant, and we've got a new covenant, and we're going to rally around this guy named Jesus. No, he's going to show them that the Old Testament prophets and people like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and David, their Hebrew prophets are saying that the Old Testament was temporary and that a New Testament was coming. And so he goes to Psalm 40, and he says, when Christ comes, there's no more need for the Old Testament, no more need for sacrifice, because he is the sacrifice. Uh, so, so he commands them, he says, now look, uh, can you just put the, put the, pull out the Psalm 40? So he's going to say, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. So you weren't, you weren't happy with the burnt offerings. And, and then he put in parentheses, though they were commanded. Why were they commanded? They were commanded to, to teach, to point. They, they couldn't fix the problem. They could only, so they, God said, hey, I've got this idea. There are shadows and forms about what's really important and that's coming called the new covenant of grace. But with these sacrifices, they don't cut it. They don't make me happy. They don't take away your sins. They don't change your heart. They're, they're barnyard animals. So he, although he prescribed them, he wasn't pleased with them because they weren't the way to be saved. They were speaking of the way that was coming, the good thing that was happening. Now, David already knew this. David is a 1,000 years out from Bethlehem, but he gets it. He gets that it's not about schlepping in some goat. You know, after Bathsheba... And the heinous nine months of terrible, dark evil in King David's life, he comes to write this, the song, Psalm 51. And here's what he says in Psalm 51. He already gets this. He's already thinking like a Christian. <laughs> he knows it's coming. He says, God, you didn't delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You didn't take pleasure. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God's a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. What is King Dave saying? He's saying, God, I know that after what I've done, it is not as easy as going out to the corral and grabbing some goat and pulling it in and saying, there, take care of all of this. 
That doesn't make you happy. It doesn't solve the problem. What you want is a changed heart. You want a broken heart. You want a new man. You want a guy who wants to keep his marriage, marriage vows and not, not lie and not do violence to other people. That's what you're after. It's not about bringing in the barnyard animals. David knew. Jeremiah knew. The prophets knew. This Old Testament's not the answer. But there's a new day coming with our Messiah. And so, according to King David, you've got those two verses there, back to the two verses from Psalm 40. I love these verses. So he's saying, Jesus, by appearing as the God-man, He's saying a couple things. The first one is charade time's over, all right? Those sacrifices were charades. So, sounds like, sounds like cross, sounds like, no, no. That, that whole 1,400 years of play acting is over when the real deal steps into the world through a human womb out comes a, a Holy Spirit conceived being with no human father, 100% God, 100% human being. He looks and talks and like us, breathes the air, has to eat to survive, but he's, he's equal to God in every way. He says, when you're looking at me, you've seen God the Father, John chapter 14, verse 9. This is the God-man. So when the God-man shows up, he says, okay, let the bulls and the goats go back to the pens. We don't need them anymore. I'm here. What I love about this verse is it shows the willingness of him to lay down his life because this is important. Contrasted with the lamb that you would bring, the lamb thinks you're going for a walk. The lamb doesn't know anything. It's not giving its life for you. You're taking it from him. That's the difference this verse wants to say is that Jesus became aware that he was the sin offering as the son of God, and he willingly accepted it. I'm seeing all these Easter shows on television, like on CNN and MSNBC, and all these experts who are telling us about Jesus. None of the experts are believers. (laughs) None of the experts believe it, And they're going to explain to the world about it. Wouldn't it be nice if you could grab some experts that actually believe it to explain it to us? So that's really, it's a very weird thing. And they love to say things like, and then Jesus was killed for his good work. No, he wasn't. Jesus was not killed for his good work. It was his good work to be killed. He came fully knowing what he had to do. My word, you have embalming spices as gifts that the wise men bring. Embalming spices, come on. We know right away what's going to happen. He's already talking about it right away in his ministry. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. This is like day one of his ministry. It was planned. Jesus, in John chapter 10, he says, uh, he says, here I am. I've come to do your will, O God. It cost me sweat drops of blood, and there's no other way. Nevertheless, your will be done. John chapter 10, he says, nobody comes and takes my life. That's a joke. He says, I willingly lay down my life. And so they come after him, you know, in the garden, and they've got clubs and swords, and Jesus goes, clubs and swords. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> clubs and swords. He says, oh, okay, come and capture me. <laughs> now, who are you looking for, by the way? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. <laughs> Down they go. All of them. There could be 200 of them there, the, the, the Greek word there. So he's like, he's in charge. He says, boys, let me help you out. Don't you got a job to do here? Come on, clubs and swords, take them out. <laughs> he tells Pilate, Pilate's like, don't you realize who I am? And still you remain silent. And he goes, no, excuse me. <laughs> no, you don't know who I am. And, uh, you know, you'd have no power except God is given. God's in charge here, Pilate. We got a plan, man. We got a plan. And I willingly 
So, so when did he come to the realization that he was going to decide, oh, I'm the son of God. I am the sin offering for the whole world. When did that happen? He read about it in a scroll. There was something, and he said, there, he says, it's written, a, hey, that's, that's me. I'll suggest where I think he, he put the pieces together. On Passover, when he was 12, he got it, and he stayed transfixed at the temple at Passover where the lambs are being slain, and he gets it. He's so mesmerized, he forgets to go home, right? So, so he's 12 years old, mom and dad. Mary thinks Jesus is with Joseph. Joseph thinks Jesus is with Mary. They get on the camels, and they go a, a day's journey. So at the rest stop, Mary says to Joseph, did Jesus get enough to eat? Because that's a Jewish mother, right? And Joseph says, oh, come on, Mary. Yeah, he got enough to eat. So how is he? What do you mean, how is he? Well, I know you have him, right? So did he eat? No, Joseph, you're kidding me. Just stop, Joseph. Stop playing right now. No, and then the look on both of their faces. I want to see the look when they realize we've misplaced the Son of God. <laughs> All right, I, I just need to see that. And no matter how many times you tell this story, and I've told it a lot, it just is entertaining every time. So they get back on the camels. Where do they go? Three days they're looking in Jerusalem for him. I started thinking, where would you look for Jesus, knowing what Joseph and Mary both know about Jesus, for three days? Did you go to the mall? <laughs> Seriously, you thought he was playing video games at the mall with his friends? I don't know what you're doing. What are you thinking? Why wouldn't you go straight there? And that's Jesus' whole point in a perfect, little, respectful, 12-year-old's voice who happens to be the son of God. He says to them, they, they, they get there. They come into the room. They're out of breath. <laughs> son, why have you treated us this way? What you put us through that for? And he says, What's the problem? Seriously? Why wouldn't you go first to the temple? It's Passover. It's mom. It's me. I'm the lamb. I'm the Passover lamb, dad. I get it. It's written in the scroll about me. And he said, let's do this. That's what it says. I'm on the same page. That's an amazing, amazing thing. And of course, later, when he's a man and he's in his 30s, he's in the synagogue where he was raised, right? And where he spent a lot of time. And they say, hey, we want to be, do the guest devotional speaking. And Jesus says, sure. So he picks up the scroll and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61 about the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. He'll open blind eyes. He'll set the captives free. He'll bind up the brokenhearted and announce the favorable year of the Lord. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. This is found in Luke chapter 4, by the way. So he rolls up the scroll after saying what the Messiah will come and do and says, oh, and by the way, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the Messiah. It's written in the scroll about me. I get it, and I'm willing. I'm going to lay down my life for the sins of the world. So when the God, when the God of the universe shows up to take care of business, you put the, the, the barnyard animals can go back to pasture, and the first covenant now has been laid aside to establish the second, and the second is the only one that can save you. Okay, last paragraph, and then we'll be done. Now, you know, preachers are, are a kind of salesman, all right? Uh, we are selling a product, really, in the noblest sense of that word. And we are, we are wanting to convince you to buy in, you know, to the plan so that you won't perish. But boy, whenever I read this, I can hear him selling them for four, five chapters, day after day 
every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away your sins. But when this priest had to offer for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Right hand of God, by the way, means he's the face of heaven. He's running the place. Okay, right hand of God is an idiom to say when you get to heaven, you're going to see him, Christ, on a throne. Since that time, oh, he throws in Psalm 110 right here just for fun. And, and after he's provided for the sins of the world, since this time, he waits for his enemies to be made his ottoman, his footstool, a footrest. All right, that's what we're waiting for. Because by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We're going to talk about that. It's beautiful. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. Oh, who's the writer of the Old Testament? Oh, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, Jeremiah 31. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, Jeremiah 31, 34. The Holy Spirit speaking, not Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the covenant. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write, on, write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin needed. If he's taken away the sins of the whole world and they don't exist anymore, what's the need for any lamb or bull or goat? Old Testament worship has been ruined, has been made obsolete if he's taken on his own shoulders all the sins of the world. So, uh, note takers, we've seen the shadow, we've met the substance so that we can enjoy, number three, our full and free and perfect salvation, our salvation. Here's what he's saying here. You got a really good deal. Do you realize what a good deal you have by one sacrifice, once for all, that forever makes you perfect in his sight, removes all your sins, absolves all your guilt, changes your heart, gives you new life, saves you from his coming wrath, you know, really. So, uh, of course, right from the beginning, he's saying, look, the... It never ends, and the poor priest, he can, never, he can never sit down. Jesus does the whole thing. He appears. He lives a perfect life. He dies as a sinless offering for the sins of the world. He, he's buried. He's raised. He ascends. He sends the Spirit, and then he's like, yeah, and he sits down. Now, look at what he does there. It's very clever. He says, the only thing left is for God to subjugate all his enemies. So what is he saying? He's saying, and he didn't have to put that line in there. He's saying that, listen, I'm not offering you, Hebrews, a choice between a nice man, you know, gentle, meek, and mild Jesus, who, 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 who came and died for your sins, or, you know, you can go back to Judaism. No, he's saying the God-man appeared. He, he lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. He was raised in three days. He ascended into glory and has taken a seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And the oh, he's done everything to redeem mankind. Redemption's over. There's only one thing left on God's agenda is to conquer all his enemies who have refused his gracious, loving, blood-poured-out offer to reconcile with him. So it's not just an option between, oh, a nice guy, religious teacher who got killed, and somehow he made atonement. No, it's either let God Almighty, who reigns in heaven, who's paid for your sins by his own blood, be your payment, or become his ottoman. His footstool, because he says that's the, the only thing God has on his mind right now, saving the world, of course. But the next event is when he appears and he conquers those who have spurned him. So Hebrews, you who are thinking, well, you know, Judaism, Jesus, you know. 
oh, oh, do you really want to put yourself on the other end of the footstool? I don't think so. Let me show you a terrible scripture that most New Age Christians just blot out. God is just to pay back trouble to those who are troubling you. Paul writing to the Thessalonians who are being martyred. He will give you relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and he will and, and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting means forever, destruction and shut out from the presence, typo, uh, from, the, from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. So, so really your option to leave this sin bearer, let me tell you the other side of things. The other th- side of things is this, that one day he will come and rule and those who wouldn't be reconciled to him and let him pay and choose the self-pay plan, well, you'll have to self-pay. And, and the idiom for that is to be made Christ's footstool. So think long and hard, my Hebrew Jewish Christian friends, he's saying about backing away from this kind of salvation. Uh, Now, he goes on to say, thank you for that scripture. He goes on to say, I love this, and pull, pull the sentence out for me, the one sentence. He says, listen, You're safe from all of that. You're not going to be the footstool because you've received the one sacrifice that has made you perfect forever. Uh, I'll read the sentence. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, do you see the paradox there? Because he's saying by one sacrifice, Jesus has made you perfect in his eyes. Done. It's complete. It's done. You've been made perfect, and you're, being, you're, the, you're the guys who are being made holy. Okay, well, which is it? It's, it's the already, and it's the not yet. So he, let me explain that to you. The already and, and the not yet means that in God's sight, his sacrifice has made you everything you need to be, and he sees you completed at the end. Shiny, radiant, perfected in a spiritual glorified body, perfect with no flaws, no sins, perfectly the way God wanted you to be, always. He sees you that way. And that one offering that he has made has made you that way. You are that. In fact, when he says in Ephesians chapter 2, having been dead in your sins, when you come to Christ, he raises you not only to new life, but he raises you and seated us, seated past tense, seated us with Christ in heavenly places. So theologically, from God's perspective, who is not bound by time, that one act has perfected you forever. That is why you don't need to every Sunday raise your hand to become saved again, because once you are saved, you are forever saved right here because he gave you a forever work. And that happened the day you got saved. Otherwise, he couldn't tell the thief on the cross this day. Because you just had a change of heart. You'll be in paradise with me. One sacrifice made you perfect forever. Charles Spurgeon said, May the truth of this verse banish forever the thought that human effort can assist in any way in gaining or maintaining our salvation. It is the result of God's own doing and God's own doing alone. He has made us. Now, now notice the other good news here is, is that we are passive in both actions. He has made you perfect forever by that action on the cross. And as we're walking along in this life, he has predestined everything in your life to be walking, transforming you into that image that he has of you at the end. 
You are becoming more loving, more patient, more wise. All of these things you're growing into by his spirit, by his predestined plan to make you into that person. But even that, you are acted upon. You are being made holy. That means separated from sin, holy and unto God. Do you see that? Well, where's your part? You cooperate in love. You love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You trust him. You walk with him. You do your best. But that one offering, all of Christ's perfection went on you, and all of your sin went on him forever. Done. You are as in God's sight. That's maybe why he can deal with us with such love and patience because he sees you perfected. And in many ways, you are. But he says, now you're walking out the process, which won't be complete until we see him face to face. Look at it this way. I got a good example of the already and not yet. Then we'll close up. Peter and Jesus, the night Jesus was betrayed, Last Supper, he gets up. He washes their feet just to give them an object lesson. He gets to Peter. Peter's too proud. I mean, can you imagine? I really relate to it as well. And Jesus pulls up with the soapy wash basin and the towel. He's already seen him do it to the few before him. And he says, are you seriously going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, yeah, I am. And he says, really, you know what? He says, uh, Jesus says, you'll never, you won't get the significance now, Peter, but later you'll understand the whole thing. Peter says, never going to happen. No way. And then the Lord says, uh, then it's over between us. Then you have nothing to do with me and the other way around. Peter says, then don't stop with just my feet. My hands, my hands, my head, my elbows, everything. And then, because that's Peter, right? That's how he is. And here's what Jesus says, and it relates to this verse. He says, listen, if you've had a bath, if you have bathed, you only need to take care of your feet. And you've all had a bath. You're all clean. You just need to take care of your feet. What is that? And then he says, except one of you, because he knew. And he probably looked at him like, Dude, there's still time. We're clean. That one sacrifice we're in, there's nothing I can add to that. There's no good works. You can't do it. You can't maintain it. But you've got to keep your feet clean. So, so the sin that separates us from salvation is taken care of. And the sin that's, that hinders relationship and, and sabotages our happiness and fulfillment and our effectiveness for God, that sin is confessed, the sin of the dirty feet, where we stumble in life, the things we do, the things we say. Those things, 1 John 1, 9, it, first of all, he says, if anybody says they don't have sin, they're lying. But if we take our sins and confess them to the Lord, he's faithful and just to cleanse us. There it is. So we get our feet cleansed in the walk, walking out. But we are safe because of the one-time sacrifice that made us perfectly acceptable in God's sight. Done. And that frees us up. Not to be able to go out and dance in mud puddles <laughs> because we know, hey, we're good. We've been made perfect forever, you know? That kind of thinking may show that perhaps the transaction has not happened. Um, but, but what a beautiful, beautiful picture of being made perfect and not by our own efforts, but by the efforts of the Lord. I do want to close with one very intriguing theological point that a lot of Christians miss. Now, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, go back to the original uh, last paragraph. So he's going to start pulling up that covenant that he used last time, Jeremiah 31, where this covenant I will make with them, the Jews, after that time, I will put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. And, and then he adds, there, Israel, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been, okay, 
Now let me show you the context of that in Jeremiah 31. So Hebrews 10 is pulling from Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, right? Here's Jeremiah 31 in context. The time's coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, New Testament, new covenant with who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah, the Jews. New Testament, new covenant for them. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. We always see this for us and or Gentiles, right? And it is. But first to them, I will be their God and they will be my people. Who? Who? The Jews. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This applies to the world. Whoever believes in the faith that Abraham had is factored into this covenant. But for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more applies to who? House of Israel and Judah. Israel. Here we go. This is what the Lord says. He appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. God speaking, first person, only if these decrees vanish from my sight. All of this just goes poof, declares the Lord. Will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me? This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens can be measured, no, they can't, and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, no, they can't, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of what they have done, declares the Lord. Okay, what is he saying? The New Testament that we all enjoy is, has been covenanted with Israel. And he says, and by the way, this is going to come to pass. It's not based on their behavior. Nothing they can do will stop the New Testament that we enjoy from being established in Israel, in the Jews someday. Well, Romans chapter 11. Can you put that verse on there? I'm almost done. Just, you know, saw a couple body languages. This is important. And I'm going to tie it together at the end here. It just takes me a minute. Paul starts in Romans chapter 11 and says, what about the Jews? Where do the Jews fit into all of this? Because on one hand, they're trying to kill me. I'm Jewish Christian, but I'm, I'm evangelizing the world, and the Jews are, are, are the enemy of Christians. Is God done with the Jews? Is Romans 11. And he says, No. And he writes all of Romans 11 about how God is not done with the Jews. And then look what he does. He quotes our verse. (laughs) Paul saying, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you're not going to get a big head, church, saying, oh, Israel's ticked God off one too many times. It's all about the church. We've replaced the church. We've replaced Israel. I'm going to let you in on a little secret here so that you don't get big heads thinking that God has done with Israel and you've replaced them. Uh Uh-uh. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of non-Jews has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Israel. That's another name for Israel. And this, here we go, Jeremiah 31 And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as far as the gospel's concerned, they're enemies right now. They don't like the whole Jesus thing. For your sake. But as for election, predestination is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, King David. For God's gifts and his call, his call right here, His call, Jeremiah 31, are irrevocable. Do not listen to anybody who tells you that God is through with Israel, that they're the bad guys on the planet. Every single UN vote condemns Israel unanimously. Why? Because that's what God says is going to happen. 
the whole world is going to turn against Israel except one. And if you read the UN records, you will see everyone voting, condemn, 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 every time, except one, United States of America. Check. Oh, wait, hold on. I've got some bad news. I've got some just breaking news. Headlines, New York Times. United States of America reassessing its relationship with Israel. Oh, they're mad at each other right now. There's bad blood there, right? It got me so excited because it's supposed to be. That's supposed to happen. And maybe that's why you don't see the United States in the end time prophecy for turning our backs on Israel on top of the pile of sins that have been committed. That's the icing on the cake. And so what does God say? He says, it won't be about their behavior and the moon will just go poof before I give up on them. They will be a nation. And here's how it goes. The church is removed. He comes, the trumpet goes off, bam, we're out of harm's way. Then he says, it's Jacob's time of trouble, which means Israel's time of trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 2. It's called the great tribulation. When the Antichrist is revealed, the church is gone. The Antichrist is revealed and solves the problem in the Middle East and signs a treaty with Israel. Boom. The great tribulation has started. You have seven years, planet Earth, from the pen going down on the paper, you have seven years, and everything is about Israel. In fact, the Antichrist is, is over in Israel. That's the center stage until three and a half years in. He breaks the pact, goes into the new temple that's going to be up on that mount, proclaim himself God, the Jews react and start to turn to God, to Christ. And by the end of those 21 judgments, Revelation chapter 6 through 18, the great tribulation, 21 judgments that render the earth unlivable. He has to renew the earth when he comes back because it's just one big nuclear glowing charred mess. But they look up. And their redemption draws nigh, and Israel is saved, calling on Yeshua, but only right at the last second when they're squeezed so tight and surrounded by the whole world. And, and he comes out of Zion and, and forgives their sins, and on Yom Kippur, he pronounces them clean. That is the biblical end-time scenario. So... In a world that shows you an entire world against Israel, that Israel's even in the land, they weren't only in the land from 1948. They weren't even in Israel there for 2,000 years. You are blessed to live right on the cusp of the culmination of the coming of the Messiah because it's the stage is set, and that's very amazing. And God will keep all of his promises. He's made promises to us and promises to them. To the Jew first means God's first dealing with Israel, then to the world. Amen? Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and, and, and for that sacrifice that once and forever makes us perfect in your sight. Lord, we, we are told in the scriptures to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray for your people, Israel. Lord, they don't do everything perfectly right, but they are your people, and you have promised to stand with them. And we pray for them, that you'd protect them and uphold them, and Lord, that your will would come to pass. We also pray for our own lives, Lord, that we'd understand the length at which you've gone to save us and what a good deal we have in you and how we should never go back to anything else because we'll never find what we need outside of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for these blessings in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. 
You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org or find us on Facebook. These podcasts are also available in video format on our Calvary Chapel The Rock YouTube page.